0: Hello and welcome to Hypot Thews, the podcast of the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at UCL, or, as we like to call it, MAPS. You may have noticed that the presenters' voices have changed somewhat. A uh, huge thanks to our previous hosts, Sophie and Laura, for all of their work. I am your new host, Malcolm Chalmers. I am the Comms and Marketing Officer at the MAPS Faculty. With me today is my co-host, Maiman Arafin, who is a graduate of the Natural Sciences Programme at UCL and is currently studying for a Master's in the Department of Science and Technology Studies. Hello! (laughs) And we have today our first guest with the new hosting setup, which is Professor Christina Pargel of the Clinical Operational Research Unit here at UCL. Hi. Uh, Christina became a professor in 2018, having become director of the clinical operations research unit in 2017, having joined it in 2005, I think. Yeah, been
1: a long time.
0: (laughs) So having obviously done our research before this podcast, we were looking up uh, Christina's Wikipedia entry, as well as being a winner of the Lynn Thomas Impact Medal and a former Harkness Fellow. Uh, we discovered that uh, after an undergraduate uh, BA in maths from Oxford University, uh, Christina has an MSc in mathematical physics, an MA in classical civilization, an MA in medieval history, an MSc in applied statistics with medical applications, and a PhD in space physics. So to begin with, how did that kind of uh, academic background happen? How did you find yourself going through all of these different fields?
1: Well... Wow. It started at A-level when, you know, you have to pick between arts and sciences. Mm. And I love both. I always really loved history. But I knew that I wanted to be, at that point, I wanted to be a physicist. Mm. And you have to study sciences. You know, so I did, like, I think double maths, physics and English A-level. But I, part of the reason I chose that is because I knew you can go back to art subjects, that it isn't kind of a linear progression in the way that mathematics is. Um, so I went down that path. But I always knew that I wanted to study history again at some point. And so I did a, my undergrad, and then I did a master's in quantum theory, actually, at King's College. And then I kind of finished it, and I thought, I don't actually know what I want to do. And I was like, I don't know, like, 21. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'll do a part-time degree in history and work at the same time to fund it. And then by the end of it, I'll know what I want to do. And then by the end of that, um, it was the year... It's going to age me, it was the... <laughs> The year that Independence Day and Armageddon came out ah. and I watched them and I was like, I want to save the world. I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> so so then I got in touch with the um, European Space Agency and said, hey, I want to be an astronaut. What do I have to do? Look, I'm not going to go the pilot route, but can I go another route? Yeah. And this year they sent me a letter back saying, thank you for your application, these are our programmes. And I went back and I said, no, I'm not asking you for a job, I'm asking you for advice. And then I got quite an apologetic phone call saying, oh, I'm really sorry, what you have to do is do a PhD in space physics, which I'd never heard of as a thing. They said, you know, Imperial does space physics. So I was like, oh, OK. So then I called up Imperial or emailed Imperial and I said, hey, you know, I haven't done any physics since A-level, but would you let me do a PhD in this subject? And they said, well, come in. And I did, and and then they were like, yeah, all right. Um, it was a bit <laughs> wow, all, all yeah. a bit more informal back <laughs> in those days. <laughs> no, that's impressive. And they said, yeah, but that to me is the advantage of a master. Like a bit of a plug for maths. People think you're really clever, so they tend to give yeah. you the benefit of the doubt. Like for instance, the MA in classical civilization was meant to be just art subjects. Yeah, I can imagine. But like, oh, we've that's... done maths all right then. You know, <laughs> it's <laughs> just kind you of, a, a bit of an yeah. So then I did a PhD in that, and then I went and did a postdoc in America. Yeah. In Um, interplanetary electrons is what i was doing how they scatter between um sun and the earth and then while i was there the space shuttle columbia blew up and all space flight kind of came to halt for a number of years and i was just like oh no 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 astronauting for me (laughs) yeah it took a bit of a swerve um and then i kind of had to decide what i wanted to do and in that time the bit of physics that I was studying, like interplanetary physics, wasn't really funded anymore in the UK. So it's kind of do I stay out in America forever or do I come back and you know my family's here and and actually by that stage, like doing space physics gets you to a lot of really cool conferences because they're all where telescopes are. So it's like Hawaii, you know, oh, Montana, wow. Chile, you know, but I realised that I was working on a really obscure problem that didn't actually matter. Like, it didn't affect anyone's life if I did it wrong, if I did it right. Yeah. There were maybe 10 people even in the world who would care about the papers that I wrote. Wow. A and I kind of realised that I wasn't one of them anymore. <laughs> okay. So I thought, well, what can I do? And I knew I wanted to come back to London. And um, I kind of just looked at all the universities and found UCL, found where I work now, the Clinical Operational Research Unit, Applying Maths to healthcare so I kind of stalked them worked out what their CVs were I was like hey a lot of these people are ex-physicists oh that's surprising yeah so then I emailed them and I was like Come on, give me a job, give me a job. <laughs> this is and great. This did. is a theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's amazing how if you ask people, they're kind of like, oh, I well, well, then.
0: This is turning into a careers advice podcast. This is
1: amazing. You is not like expected an... a, No, I such a high one. Absolutely.
0: it's such I'm, a I'm, cool trajectory. This is, this is not the kind of history you would usually expect. From, no. You know, I did A-level maths, and then I did a degree in maths, and then a master's in it's maths, exactly. and now really I work so... in maths.
2: This is...
0: <laughs> This is this inspiring.
1: Is, honestly. Well, so then, um, I mean, it wasn't quite like that. So they had to obviously advertise. And then I was obsessively checking the web page. When are they going to advertise? When are yeah. they going to advertise? Because my job was coming to an end in the States. Mm. And eventually, um, I emailed the director and I said, look, I'm not saying you have to give me the job. But if you don't advertise it, at least, I'm going to have to take this other job offer that I've got. And I did have another job offer. And then, sure enough, the next day, it <laughs> <laughs> <the hand laughs> popped pops off and I applied and I got Perfect. it.
2: Perfect. I'm still here. That's so amazing. that's kind of how
1: I got into this and and it has been like I've never regretted that decision yeah. at all. It has like since I started what I believe being an academic is about has changed in response to my work and I have a very different philosophy now than I did when I joined, but actually the work I do and and I love the fact that what I do matters to people. So that has definitely keeps inspiring me. But I also haven't forgotten history. So then in mm. 20 no, 2008 I did another medieval history one at Birkbeck, which was brilliant. Like, you I did see. this whole essay on um, 10th century wills by women and what that tells you about women in society. And I, it was just, like, so oh, obscure, cool. but you know, <laughs> it's really cool. You're really yeah. there thinking, oh, what does this mean? And, and it kind of challenges you to think in a really different way. Yeah, and,
2: absolutely. Um,
1: and I found that maths was quite useful, because what mm. maths teaches you is to look at what's not there. So when I'm looking at the evidence, you're always thinking about like what isn't in the evidence, Mm -hmm. what don't we know about, why don't we know about it? And you get quite a kind of different perspective,
2: I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Whereas would you say that the medieval history stuff it's looking at what is there and kind of working the other way around or what would you say the differences are? So for instance,
1: I did my thesis all about the Cathar heresy in France in the thirteen hundreds. Um and the confessions, they have reams and reams of confessions. And I'd just been reading in psychology work quite recent about false confessions, and it's become much more acknowledged that pressure will will yeah. make people confess to things they didn't do. And until then, if I looked at the historical literature, like modern academia, about the confessions, they assumed that what people said were true. So I looked at it from the point of view as, actually, it might well not be true, given we know the psychological pressure these people were under. Um, and then can I find evidence of false confessions by coordinating people's because often they gave more than one two three four and then I could actually like constructed timelines I was like Sherlock I it was like <laughs> it was a red string across yeah, the yeah but honestly and then I kind yeah. of had this in my thesis saying he couldn't have been there because I know he was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it, so, but that was kind of just really it was just so interesting
2: yeah, that sounds really and then
1: the stats like, that was for my job yeah <laughs> I kind of realized well I do maths and health Every time I meet someone, they're like, "Oh, you do stats?" And I was like, "No, I don't do stats." And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do stats, and then I can say yes. <laughs> <laughs> <because> I'm, <laughs> I'm tired of this. Surely that's not the reason. <laughs> yeah, no, it's-,
0: it's it's amazing to hear of all the the impetus for all of these different studies you've done, and then statistics at the end is like, oh, I'm just tired of people annoying me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do a degree myself. just to shut them all up. <laughs>
1: I mean, it was useful (laughs) as well, genuinely useful.
0: So that now leads on very well to the current work that you're doing. Yes. Um, so you had your inaugural lecture in December 2019 I yeah, think it was. Yeah. Right.
2: So the inaugural lecture in December which you gave was called Putting Operational Research into the Heart and the Heart into Operational Research. Um, and you were exploring your current work I believe about children's health surgery and modeling the risks around complications that can come from that surgery. So do you mind telling me a bit more about what you spoke about in that lecture and kind of what led you to want to give it in the first place? Sure I mean in terms of what led me to want to give it yeah. is
1: Mass told me I had to give it it's okay great it's not like I'm like I really want to give a one hour lecture but yeah, my friends <laughs> yeah. no that's fair but enough. actually then once I you know I was thinking about doing it um I thought it would be quite nice to use that like if you're not going to reflect on your career for your inaugural like when are you going to do it so I was like right people can listen to me Do I have something to say that's not just this is what I've done over the last X number of years? And so I kind of focused on that whole programme of work that we've been doing since about 2010. Because it really did change how I view my role in society, in UCL, in the mass community. It's all about looking at what happens to children who have surgery on their heart it's almost always because they have some kind of congenital defect. So like most commonly, it can be like a hole in the heart, which you just kind of close up. But it can be all kinds of things where you get born with like your um, your aorta and your vena cava. So the artery coming out and the artery going in like the wrong way around. Right. So that's really bad. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Or some people get born with just half a heart also really bad Uh. and and anything in between like loads of things can go wrong and typically you need then an operation in your first year or two of life right um and it's still kind of the leading cause of death among children I mean it's still rare that Mm -hmm. you die from it but it's still quite um, an important burden of disease and it's something that once you're born with it you have it for your whole life and it's not just one interaction with the healthcare system it's lot of interactions in 97 Mm -hmm. people some people might remember they had the bristol heart inquiry yes
0: yeah.
1: where um they looked into bristol and they found that they had more deaths than you would expect for babies born with this condition okay and that started really the push in the uk to start auditing outcomes and deaths particularly in hospitals and so the national congenital heart audit was set up in 2000 and from then on every single procedure performed on a on a child with congenital heart disease, had to go into that. Mm -hmm. And then they started about five years later actually publishing the number of deaths for each hospital. But... Because, as I said, so much can go wrong with the heart and it carries completely different risks. And so it's actually not just... You can't just compare the number of deaths across hospitals because it really matters upon who they're operating. So some hospitals specialise in the really high-risk children and they will have more deaths and that's not because they're bad.
2: No, and it's probably because the conditions are so different, as you've explained, right? But
1: at the same time... You do want to keep track of it because you want to know how can we improve? Are we improving? What can we learn from each other? And so what you need for that is what's called a risk model, which is effectively a formula that tells you the chance Mm -hmm. of someone dying, (laughs) given that you know what's wrong with them, how old they are, are they underweight, are they premature? All these things that really make a difference to your chances of of a good outcome. So it started off with us building this risk model, this formula, in 2010 to 2012, where we worked with clinicians from Great Ormond Street. Mm-hmm. And we developed a good model. You know, it worked pretty well. That finished in 2012. And then straight away, we're thinking, well, you know, what next? We actually want to help people use it. Because mm. often things just end at publication. Yeah. But just publishing a formula doesn't make something happen. So then we got a bit of extra money from the national audit body to actually work with some hospitals to develop Excel software. That meant that they could just take the data that they're collecting anyway, stick it in there, would do some cleaning, checking, run the formula, and then tell them how they're doing compared to what the formula expected. Mm-hmm.
0: Was it a deliberate choice to choose something that would run in Excel because it's so common, the software?
1: Yes, because that's what people use. And so I think one of the things we've learned is that any barrier, even a barrier that adds two minutes to your day, doesn't happen. So, yeah, it was always a deliberate choice to do it in Excel. and, And I worked with them quite a lot to make sure it was as easy as possible. So the order of the columns is the same as the order they put it in. It gives them extra stuff, like I would clean all their data and sort it and highlight it nicely, um, give them nice error messages, because then actually help them with their own data. They could keep that up Mm. to date. So we developed that software, and the National Audit Body wanted to use it for the first time for their public reporting. And they put quite a lot of pressure on us and said, you know, can we have it? Can we have it? And I go, it's not quite ready. And then eventually it was ready. And originally we would planned to give it to the audit body and all the hospitals at the same time. Mm -hmm. but we were just licensing it through UCL Business. Right. So we were just there. So they said, okay, okay, well, you can have a prototype a week earlier. And then they were testing it internally. And what happened was that deliberately I designed into it that if you are missing, if if some of the patient records are missing really important information, like age Mm -hmm. or weight, it won't calculate a risk for that patient. It says it's meaningless. Yeah. And you have to go back and you have to update that record on the grounds that the hospitals would know you know what the date is and um, you know what the age is and all that kind of stuff the national audit body when they tested it obviously couldn't update any missing data because they didn't without going back to hospitals which they would do if they were actually publishing it But at the time they were just testing it and so what they did is they just removed any data that was missing Uh. any of that information which oh. is, again, if you were just testing it to see how it worked, that's not a big problem. What happened was that one of the hospitals, a third of their records had no weight, which isn't ideal. Mm. But it had never been used before, that information. So they had no way of okay. knowing it was going to be really crucial. Sure. So they just took that out. Okay. And none of those patients with a missing weight had died. So then what you have is that in the rest oh, of their no. data, they've got all the deaths and only two thirds of the survivors. <laughs>
0: Okay. So so when they ran it, it
1: looked as if they had this massive mortality rate, which they didn't, but it looked as if they did. And then internally in the audit body, they sent it round and um, said, oh, look, this this looks a bit funny. Because they hadn't really realised quite the implications of what had happened. Mm -hmm. And then the audit director saw it. And he, without their permission of the steering committee, mm-hmm. body without the permission of anyone working there, without consent, he then leaked it to Bruce Keogh, the, the medical director at the time. OK. And I can tell you this because it all came out at the time. Yeah, thank okay. God. And he didn't have any of the context. He just got an email saying, this hospital has a really high yeah. mortality rate.
0: Which it would do if a yeah. third Yeah, and survival. he felt,
1: I have to do something about this. And the next day, he shot the unit at the hospital, suspended surgery.
2: Oh, my God. So I woke up. huge <laughs> implications. I woke up
1: like it was Easter Good Friday on Easter and mm. I saw the headline, This hospital heart surgery suspended, really high mortality rate. Just... Oh wow, that really shows the effects. <laughs> and of, of, how for, I just
0: for the listener, Christina is holding her head in her hand in shock here. <laughs> yeah,
1: so am I now. And the, and you know, like I went into academia to make an impact. Like, well, I wanted to make an impact. That Are isn't you... the impact I was envisaging making. No. I have to tell you, you know, it and and I just like, huh. And then, like, the press just... I mean, partly because it's Easter, right, there's not much going on, but the press took this and just ran with it that the Telegraph had this headline, 20 children may have died needlessly at heart unit. And I read that and I thought, firstly, that's not how averages work. No, <laughs> no, that's the problem. Secondly, what if you're a parent who, whose child's about to have surgery there
2: or, or who's emotional. just had
1: surgery there? What if your parent whose child died there? Like, how does that make you feel? I just thought yeah. it was so irresponsible... They also had this graph on the first page, which is the worst graph I've ever seen in my life to this day. I know, obviously, you can't see it on a podcast, but I will just say that the head... the title of it is Average Death Rate is 100%, which if that was true, oh
2: <laughs> it <which laughs> would be pretty
1: bad. Like, it was just so bad. You can just about This it. is obscene. You can, you can just about yeah. make out yeah. uh,
0: amongst the various tube lines. And yes, it, wow. it genuinely does say on the Telegraph website there, Average Death Rate 100%.
1: Yeah. And then it said that the hospital in question had a death rate of 300%. And I said, that means for every child they're operating on, they're Three going out and killing died. another two.
2: <laughs> and wow. then
1: um, people started calling for Bruce Keir to resign. The Archbishop of Canterbury led a pilgrimage to hospital oh for God. no particular reason that I can work out. But it was all kind of very set up. And so the really. next day we, I realised when someone told me, oh, they're missing weight. I was like, ah, right. I know what happened. Mm-hmm. So then I went up to them with my boss at the time and we worked with them for a couple of days to correct their data. We ran it. showed that actually they, they were in what you would expect.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And about a week later, the hospital reopened.
2: You <laughs> yeah. deserve a huge apology. And from- the audit
1: the director had to resign. Okay. which I think is a good thing. Yep. Um, yeah. Um but then by that stage we'd released this new risk formula yep. for the hospitals. The first they'd really heard of it was, it was a the nice hospital context. being closed and you know do- surgeons being door It was really quite bad.
2: Dramatic.
1: Mm. And they were furious, of you course. know, about everything. Yeah. Um so then we went on a tour of the hospitals to basically explain to them why we had created it to say, you know, it wasn't about judgment. It was to support you in how you're delivering care, to help you make decisions. This is not how we intended it to be used. This is, Mm. you know, we don't see this as a legitimate use, what happened and and kind of try to smooth things over. And then actually people started to use it. I mean, it's mandated for use now. It's been used ever since. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And people liked it, but it did kind of change how I felt about academia because I always thought, well, I want to do useful maths. Well, this was useful Mm. maths. But it, was it useful enough? Because actually, I see what you, mean. you know, if you're creating harm, is that actually useful? I also, you know, a lot of people, especially mathematicians, tend to think, well, it's not my problem how people use my work. I didn't mm. do that. But I thought, well, whose is it then? Yeah. And maybe it isn't my problem. But if, if no one else is going to solve it, then actually then maybe it should be my problem. No, and absolutely. if I'm going to do something that can be used to judge performance of a hospital then I do have a responsibility for how that's communicated, how that's understood, how it's used. Um, mm.
2: No, this sounds really like a kind of baptism of fire <laughs> yeah. then, really. If yeah. that was your, yeah, you're kind of, I really understand why after that experience you'd be hyper aware of kind of the social consequences of the work that you are doing. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. do you feel like it's changed a lot, the the way that you view academia and your role within it? You mentioned that it has, and, and I was wondering how, how so. Yeah, well, so then um, a
1: couple of years later, I applied for another grant to, do, to update the risk model. Because by that stage, as soon as you start using something, people start putting in more data. Yeah. <laughs> so the data got a lot better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that also meant that the model was out of date and we had to update it. But when I applied to do that, at the same time I applied to produce a website mm-hmm. that actually explained what it did and how it can be used. And that was kind of working with this charity, Sense About Science, who oh, yeah. do a lot of work on public communication of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only did they get funded, but NIHR, the Research Council, actually came back to me and said, we want you to spend more money on the public engagement side. We okay, don't think you're great. being ambitious enough. So I was like, oh, all right. that's <laughs> a change, really. Yeah. So to change, really. So we ended up having like this 15-month process where we had four workshops with both um journalists um representatives of the royal colleges doctors oh, wow. and just kind of pu- members of the public and then a separate group of parents whose children had had heart surgery yeah and you know after 15 months we had four different workshops actually designing what should go into this resource you know do they un- you know what do people understand about a risk model what do people understand about how outcomes are made and how the nhs yeah. monitors it um, we work with, like, David Spiegelhauter's group in Cambridge. He's a professor of the public
2: understanding of uh, risk. his name rings a bell. I think yeah. This, yeah. Did you write in a Guardian article Yeah, then? yeah at the this, end when it came out. I would yeah. really recommend that. So for anyone listening, the headline was Making NHS Data Public is Not the Same as Making It Accessible. We Can and Should Do Better, which yes. I think exactly summarises what we <laughs> are Well, that saying. basically is the article. Saying. No, but that's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. A, a great sort of um, takeaway message, really, yeah. that actually in an age where we're kind of obsessed with getting more and more data that doesn't necessarily mean our literacy of that data is going up. Exactly.
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah. And, um... And also, what was happening until we did this website
1: is that they would publish the report every year, but it'd be a a fifteen-page PDF that you would have to dig through an NHS website to find. So, who's yeah, exactly? Who's doing that? (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, and I don't think so. Having it, yes, it's available. It's not. That's not
2: accessible. That's an interesting point. I think often with academia, when you have when it's all open access and the results are there, that doesn't necessarily mean people are reading them or caring about them for that matter. So, no, they don't. Yeah, I really um, see the use of a website which actually makes an effort to. Include people and we also
1: had um like an experimental psychologist from kings working with us and that was that was great but he's he that we literally had um like experiments where we would test the use of the word chance versus probability versus Mm. luck and see how people reacted to it Mm. um how is it appropriate not appropriate like talking about luck when you're talking about Deaths from heart surgery, very inappropriate. So we couldn't use that word, for instance. Mm. That makes sense, Um, because
2: the subject matter is so emotive. Yeah, exactly. Getting that language right Um, is really important. We
1: shifted the whole frame from mortality to survival. Mm -hmm. Because partly what wasn't being emphasised in any of it was the UK has some of the highest survival rates in the world. It's like 98% now of children survive a month after surgery. And it it used to be, you know, back in the 1990s, you know, 80%. I mean, it's gone up massively. a
2: huge amount to improve. Yeah.
1: And so we kind of did that, and it completely changed the content of the website like originally i thought all we're going to do is just show them what the audit body does and just explain it you know with a bit of cartoon bubbles or something yeah, exactly and <laughs> Some it turns out that people just didn't understand what the audit body was producing it kind of did things in terms of ratios and it turns out people don't know what a ratio is no, no. or even things like they would describe the ratio this is actual slash predictor. people didn't know what the slash was and right. it was things that i would never have realized That's because the it's thing, my because my life <laughs> yeah, exactly so seeing outside um, of that. And kind of what was a plot of dots with some confidence intervals around it, people read it as a bar chart because of how yeah. it was coloured. And it was just things like that that made you realise we can't present These it as well. It's subtle things, but yeah. it's so
2: important to have. And much then the parents decide. are saying
1: to us, we didn't know survival was that high. Like, why not? Right, because yeah. they present it as a ratio, there is no absolute numbers there. Right. Yeah. Um, so we presented things as um, absolute numbers, and we changed the look of everything. And yeah. then they said, right, we need some key messages. You know, you keep telling us you shouldn't compare hospitals to each other. You should compare them to what the, the formula tells tells us to expect. So why are you putting everything in a table? Because that just invites comparison. We were like, oh, that's is is a good point yeah. as well. <laughs> so then we changed yeah. to individual. So all those kind of little decisions. Um, they all add up, I guess, yeah. to
2: how, yeah, how yeah. it's received and how it's we it kind of went
1: all the way down till we kind of developed like, animations of of how um, risk formulas work for people who are interested. That's kind of second layer information. But, sure. yeah, But in it, you kind of have to show scenarios of what can happen. Like, there are lots of different realisations of what can happen. You know, we're really stuck because we're going to have to show cartoon children dying.
2: Mm. What is the
1: sensitive way of doing it? And it was kind of literally like... Do we fade them out? Do you put a black square around them? Do you...
2: Like, oh, wow. really That's thinking about it. it was a really it. tricky decision, and they, visually.
1: And they kind of ended up saying, just just fade them out into yeah. blank.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but things like that where, you know, it shouldn't, that shouldn't be a decision made by me. No, I really see that. And so we ended up with a really nice website that everyone really liked. It launched in 2016. But what it showed me was that the parents and other members of the public really valued both being asked, but mm. also actually having access to that information, that it did matter to them. And I just thought, you know, this is the NHS. Like, if we're not making it available, then what are we doing? You know? So, and then, so that kind of was that project. But then, following on from that now, whenever we work in this field, which we've been adding like another three or four projects in it, we have like patients and families involved right from the beginning. So, we did a project looking at complications after heart surgery. And we chose which complications to measure with the families. Directly because of that, we put in two things that we measured that we weren't going to measure one was feeding problems. Okay. Which is really interesting because clinicians did not think of it as that important. Mm. Partly because they were really intensive care clinicians and surgeons and intensive care the kids don't really feed because they're tube fed. Of course. And as far as the clinicians go, as long as they get their food somehow, we care more about, you know, the heart and whether that's working. Whereas the parents are saying, you don't understand if, if my child's vomiting four times a day because they can't digest it's, it completely disrupts my life. I'm constantly panicking, they're not putting yeah. on enough weight. So that kind of became something huge we not measure. And it, and it turned out to be really common about one of 10 mm-hmm. have some kind of um
2: so do you feel just that kind of leads on to a question I was wondering, from that Guardian article, I was it really came across that you want to involve key audiences right from the start. And I was talking to Malcolm a little bit about this, because I, I think as far as I know, that seems quite an unusual decision for someone who's based in academia a lot of the time it's actually quite difficult to kind of get the stakeholders or the audiences you want involved right from the start but do you feel you made that decision as a response to kind of seeing that the priorities were different and those experiences from parents were really important or was it something you had in mind from the start that you kind of then followed? No it was a response
1: to seeing well firstly to what happened yeah and but then once I had worked with families and parents and patients I just thought what are we doing? Like, if we're not measuring the things people care about yeah. and we can't then communicate what we're measuring, then so what? I mean, that's, mm. that's really kind of how it came to me. So I do end up, I have now do a lot of work with mm. parents. I've not got no particular training in it. It's not something but typically <laughs> a mathematician would do. No,
2: exactly. But for
1: me, it means that I know that what I'm doing... I'm giving people the information that they want, and it's my job as a mathematician to make sure that information is right yeah. and meaningful. No, I mean it, it definitely has changed how I approach.
2: No, my I find work. that I find that really admirable. I think the thing that really stood out to me from. That that article and from what you're saying is that it really seems you don't kind of view your role in academia as just it doesn't end as you hand over kind of this magic formula, Um, and that really comes across because there's so much work to do before that that formula is devised and then afterwards as well with the communication. So I think there are kind of different ways of being an academic, right? You can be an academic because
1: you absolutely love your subject and you want to find new results, move forward the frontiers of science. Right? I'm I'm not doing that. Like I don't invent new mathematics. I want to have an impact on society Mm -hmm. and make a contribution in my own way and the way that I can do that is through academia and so for me academia is a vehicle rather than the fundamental goal and and there's a place for all of it yeah so that to me is what kind of drives me and if I felt that I would make a better contribution outside of academia then I'd leave
2: I was wondering actually on that note um can you think of a moment that's actually really stood out to you as kind of driving you to to stay in this particular field an inspiring moment maybe I just I feel like so much of the the work you do must be quite emotional loaded kind of seeing people in quite difficult situations and helping with the decision making around that working with doctors makes you feel quite
1: humble back in god years ago we were doing some work with um, a lung surgeon okay. at st thomas's and i can't remember why we we're having a meeting at st thomas's and we got in the lift and this person came in and he was like professor treasure he's like you know you saved my life. I'm so grateful. I just want to thank you. And i just, oh my like, goodness. You know, and you do kind of think Well, no that. one's ever gonna come up to me and say, Christina, you've saved my life with that patient. <laughs> like, well done. You know, and, and you kind of Yeah I And mean, I thought, oh should I you know, is, is this a better way of creating an impact? And I thought, well, I probably wouldn't have been a great doctor, I'm quite clumsy. So no. I think the world has been saved by me not becoming a doctor, but <laughs> but then there aren't that many people who do the kind of maths I do. So I think, well oh, maybe this is where
2: yeah. I can stay.
1: Um, no, and I'm sure that
2: the impact is still definitely there, maybe just less kind of directly observ- yeah. observable But for, for instance, you, but- there is this thing that did happen to me, like literally just
1: in November, I was giving a talk kind of about this work at mm-hmm. a conference. And afterwards, um, this guy came up to me and he is a research nurse at a London hospital. And he'd been working with us on the complications after heart surgery mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that project, we'd also work with families to produce an information sheet about what happens, like, you know what are the chances of your child developing complications? What does it mean? What type of complications are there? Yeah, we'd kind of sent out the PDF of the information leaflet, if, if you like, and then the project ended and we ran out of money. Oh. but he but he actually has been using it. He came up to me because I want you to know that I have been using your information sheet with parents because we ah, sent it great. to the partner hospital, mm-hmm. and they they really like it. And he actually told me the story. It's actually it's a sad story. Okay, but um, he said a family had come up to him just last the week before. And their son had developed a complication and had died. Okay. But they'd said to him specifically that having that information had really helped them come to terms with it. They said we felt like we were prepared that things can go wrong. And it really helped us to have that and to understand and maybe to come to terms a bit easier Mm. with what happened. And he goes, I wanted to let you know. And I just thought actually, yeah, if that helped like one family... That's comes to terms with it, then that that yeah. means a lot to me. And that's not mathematics, but that is communication and yeah. it's about having a responsibility for your work mm-hmm. and, and caring about what's done
2: with it. I wondered as well, I guess, being involved in the NHS for some time now, definitely my experience, I've seen how the NHS is under a lot of strain at the moment and I wondered whether you saw an effect on, on how your work is being um, delivered. Well, not so much in terms of
1: my work, but it doesn't okay. have enough money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see it, and you see it every day. Yeah. And I like even, you know, Great Ormond Street, which is one of the most specialized, most well-funded hospitals. You know, it, it it's it's difficult. And it's not just about having enough money, it's really difficult they're finding it especially in London to recruit nurses. Mm. Brexit is going to make that harder. Yep. Um but partly especially for nurses like yeah. living in London can't do it mostly. The mm-hmm. you know, people, like people I met at Great Ormond Street, they commute in for you know, 2 hours, 3 hours and then they might stay in London for a night and go home and I mean it's a real struggle. It's a and and what you've what I've seen in in the NHS is the system has relied on people's goodwill. It's relied on more more people working for free, effectively, over time, masses of overtime, because they care about their patients. Yeah. And at some point and I think now you're starting to see it, it crumbling, that they just can't keep doing that. And people are leaving, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. I think it's worse than things like primary care. Okay. Specialist care still tends to be quite well-funded. It's quite a small community. yeah see. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not great. Yeah. And that's partly why, you know, sometimes I do question my role, because, yes, I can do things to help, but fundamentally what they need is better resourcing. It's been underfunded for 15 mm-hmm. years now, well, 10 years. And... And I can't do that.
0: Um, you, you mentioned Brexit in passing. Yeah, there we go. Obviously... <laughs> That's um, how
1: I like to mention it nowadays.
0: <laughs> fleetingly <laughs> in as little as possible. You wrote quite a few articles over the last mm, few yeah. years. From what I can see, kind of looking at the actual, the figures and the statistics behind it and how those didn't necessarily match up to what people's opinions were or what people believed.
1: Well, the kind of Brexit work that I did for over about two years was doing kind of quite big public surveys, but trying to ask slightly different questions to what was out there to try and really understand what was driving people's attitudes towards um, Brexit. And one of the things that came out really strongly of that was this idea of sovereignty, mm. that among people who voted Leave, there are about 30% of people who voted Leave who put immigration as their number one priority mm-hmm. above everything else. But the rest, it was control over our own laws, making our own trade deals. Um, and immigration came quite low down, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think I hadn't, until I saw that data, this was like on 10,000 people, it wasn't kind of two people in the yeah, pub, that I, well, I am like your typical London Remainer, And I hadn't really quite appreciated that sovereignty really meant a lot to a lot of people. Because it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that, that to me. And I guess I thought it was a cover for... Immigration, but I I genuinely then don't think it was. I think we were one of the first surveys to show that. And I think what I'm interested in now is seeing how much do people still care about that. Now, effectively, you know, we have exited. We're still in transition, but in you know next January, in theory, we will have this sovereignty that people wanted. And I and I kind of wondering how will that play out, and will people still really want it? Will they think it's worth what's happened? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know what happens to the economy. I don't know what will happen to employment. I don't know what will happen. You know, who who do people blame for whatever will happen or who do they credit? Depending. And so what we did, and this is something I actually learned directly from doing the website, is before we did the survey, I did little surveys, specifically online, only with leavers to test the wording and say to them, what do you think we should ask? Does this mean okay. something to you? Because i'm i didn't vote leave so i there's no point in me asking the questions about oh, that's so that interesting. so i have to ask questions that are relevant to the people that i know that i don't understand as well and you know, i don't sp- i don't need to ask what people like me think because i kind <laughs> of have a reasonable <laughs> idea so i think that is kind of what set it apart as well is that we tried really hard and would spend several weeks mm-hmm. if not months really thinking about what our questions are, what the priorities are, what the actual language is. We had like 10, 15 different versions of an immigration question Oh, wow. and asked it and said, okay, which one of these actually means something to you? And we gave space to people to put free text. And it was just really useful, and it did change. Like well, I wasn't going to put in control over our own laws because I just didn't think it was a and thing. It actually and then,
2: became a big yeah, one. Yeah, and that was the top one. So it's that kind oh, of thing wow, where... wow, that's surprising. Um, but it does, it really shows the power of kind of stepping outside of, of yeah. echo chambers, really. And I wondered whether... Would you be interested in kind of doing these sorts of surveys to to see how it has changed since?
1: Yeah, of course. Like I, yeah. I
2: really wanted it, but I have to get money to do it. Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> and 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 the, and the thing is with like survey data like this, you can't do it as a research grant. I mean, you can't mm, have the year long lag. You just have to do it, yeah. and then so you kind of they don't cost that much money. It's like between five and ten grand to go. Mm-hmm. But trying to... I'm not going to spend my own money. <laughs> like, no. Like I'm not, not don't what I don't think anyone would expect you to do that, yeah. But it's kind of, who who will give you that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and luckily, you know, we had found people at UCL gave some money grand challenges, some from King's College, mm-hmm. actually their European unit we have a little bit of money from the people's vote campaign once you know so things like that okay. but that is a real struggle and it's how do I fit that into my day job and mm. but one thing I'd be really interested in now is, is our identity and this idea of how people's identity shapes what kind of relationship they want with Europe in the future mm. so one that we had like my friend and I who um is a not a UCL but we did all our Brexit work together yeah She has this hypothesis that people who hold multiple identities already, like, say, um, minority ethnic and British, Mm -hmm. um, Scottish and British, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like me, I'm German and British, you know, might find it easier to have also a European identity. But we don't know. You know, that's just a hypothesis.
2: That's an interesting
1: but it's, Or, you know, is it different if you have identities that you choose, like, say, Londoner and right. British, or identities that you're born with, um, like ethnicity? Like, like, it's kind of like, how, how do those shape our future and how we want to have a relationship? Because I think if we don't understand what people actually want now, you've kind of got this idea, we've Brexited it, and it just gets to be the government that decides what that relationship is. But actually, what do the people want it to be? It's something I'd be really interested in understanding. It's not particularly mathematical. Really <laughs> <magical>. <laughs> but I find
2: it really interesting.
0: No, of course. So, with all of the process that you went through um, with your research we were discussing, and all the processes that you went through um, with the surveys to try and get accurate information from leavers, if you were to talk to an early career researcher right now, or someone doing a PhD, or somebody who is at that very initial stage of doing their research, do you think there's any kind of general advice that you could give to them? so that they can avoid making mistakes? Are, are there any things that people maybe don't look out for early in their career that you've learned over the, the course of the last 10 years is important to look for?
1: It really depends on why you're doing it. So for me, the questions I ask now when I think about what research I want to do is, is does it matter? And who yeah. does it matter to? And can I involve those people in my work from the beginning? Um what i guess i have learned is not to be scared just to change field like sometimes like now what i do tends to be driven by what i think needs doing mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for instance i'm just starting a, i'm working on a project with the health foundation all about periods and we're trying to quantify the burden of menstruation on women which i think is this massive oh, under wow, that's problem <laughs>
2: so I, I have yeah. i don't
1: know anything about what well, i know about periods i have them but i don't know anything beyond that no exactly but it's that well actually you know, it doesn't seem that this particular bit of work's been done, I think we should do it. And how do we do it? And who do we need to involve? And it's not even about, you know, me leading it. It should be about what needs doing, who can do it? Mm -hmm. How do you facilitate that? Do you care about it? If you don't care about what you're working on, then what's the point? I mean, I suppose that's kind of why I ended up leaving physics. I still love physics. But what I was doing was something I realised I didn't care about. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, especially now my nieces are actually just choosing the A-levels. But People feel like what the decisions they make now are mm. uh, the decisions for life. People and that so isn't concrete. true. Yeah. You can change. Like, I did a PhD in space physics with no physics for years. That's
2: amazing. And then I
1: switched <laughs> so... to do this. I didn't know any operational research. Not a thing. I've yeah. never done a course in it in my life. Now I'm, I'm a professor of it. So, you know, apart from having massive imposter syndrome, <laughs> no. it, does kind of, it does kind of, you know, oh. you can switch. Yeah. And, and if you're a genuine, nice person to work with and you care about it and you're sensible and, and you want to do things right and you're good at learning, if you've got a PhD, you can learn stuff. Yeah. Sure. Then, then don't, <laughs> don't be scared of learning stuff. Yeah. And you can change career at any time. I've still got a career change in me.
0: <laughs> do you have any ideas what it might be or is it just some some blank space left for a master's in future oh
1: no i think political science yeah oh, cool. uh, I've that composite... would make sense for all of them <laughs> yeah, all of the yeah i think i'd like to have a bit more grounding and some of the basic theory yeah, yeah. that'd um, be interesting i really like game theory but i'm not sure you could just do uh, a master's in game theory on its own i'm sure somewhere there would be it's like a course on it
0: So, having discussed all of this work you've done in the last few years, Christina, what's next?
1: Actually, we have literally just heard that um, we've been funded on a new EPSRC hub for mathematics and AI in healthcare. Wow. um, Which is really exciting. It's actually led by um, Professor Rebecca Shipley, who leads UCL Healthcare Engineering. (laughs) But it involves CORU, where I work, it involves Department of Mathematics, Department Mm -hmm. of Computer Sciences, and we're working really closely with Great Ormond Street and UCL Hospital and it's going to be completely trying to kind of update models of physiology using real-time high frequency data from intensive care and think about what how can we learn better physiology to actually improve patient's care on the ward and I think that's just going to be really exciting So that's kind of completely different. (laughs) That sounds incredible. Yeah,
2: yeah, it is. Huge mishmash of different disciplines there.
1: It is, and it's really interesting because my role is really to kind of broker between the really technical side and the clinical side and think about how do we we involve patients and the public. So Becky and I will be really thinking about how do we integrate it and make it work. Yeah, so it's quite cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time, (laughs) (laughs) Christina. This has been Hypotenthuse, the podcast of the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences. I've been Malcolm Chalmers. My co-host is Maimana Arafin. We've had our guest, (laughs) Professor Christina Pargel.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, we'll be back next month. Thanks very much.